the piece of advice that the provost who hired me um, gave, which I thought was really important, uh, hired me as a dean, okay, was at every level of the university, you're going to be most successful if you think one level up. So when you're a faculty member in a department or the leader of a department, thinking about the college as a whole and, the, and not just what's in the interest of your discipline or your department, but thinking about what's important to the college. And then when you're in college leadership, thinking beyond just the narrow interests of your college and thinking about how you can be useful and helpful to the university as a whole. And so always kind of thinking one level above. And that even applies to the, my current role as a president, right? I mean, to me, then what's the level above? Well, it's the role of the university in the broader community. This is the Beats Working Show. We're on a mission to redeem work, the word, the place, and the way. I'm your host, Mark Wright. Join us at Winning the Game of Work. Welcome to Beats Working. On the show this week, redeeming work through higher education. Our guest is Seattle University President Eduardo Peñalver. Peñalver's presidency marks a significant new chapter at Seattle U. He is the first non-Jesuit leader in the school's 133-year history. We explore the significance of that in a wide-ranging conversation that also covers Peñalver's career milestones that include being a Rhodes Scholar, clerking at the U.S. Supreme Court, and serving as dean of the Cornell School of Law. Peñalver reveals the strategies he's learned over the years to succeed at leading others and the mentors who set examples for him to follow. You also might be intrigued by the advice he got and follows to lead by considering the next level up. It's a pretty cool philosophy. He also shares what he's doing to redeem work for both faculty and students and why the Seattle U job is truly a homecoming. Eduardo Peñalver, welcome to the Beats Working Podcast. It's so good to have you here. I've really been looking forward to our time together. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Mark. Okay, so winning the game of work. This is about winning the game of work through higher education. Um, you're the 22nd president of Seattle University in, I believe it's 133rd uh, year of history. Um, I had the honor of helping MC your inauguration a few years ago, and it was, it was such a meaningful experience for me and such a big, I think, shift for the university. So we're going to get to that. You're the first non-Jesuit president of Seattle U. Yep. Um, let's explore that in a bit, but I'm, I'm super interested in your story because when you took this job at Seattle U, this was really a homecoming for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I grew up in uh, Puyallup, uh, which is about, you know, I used to say 45 minutes south of here, but I think it's grown in, <laughs> in the commuting time. Uh, it's about 30 miles, um, uh, southeast of, of Seattle. And I went to high school at Henry Foss high school in Tacoma. So tell me a little bit more about your childhood, because um, your work journey is is so closely tied with your scholarly journey. You're a Rhodes Scholar, you're a law professor and scholar. Um, I'd love to know, when as a kid did you know that you had a gift when it, when it came to learning? Because I'll tell you, school for me was a struggle, but it seems yeah. like you figured something out pretty early on. Well, you know, it was interesting. I went to... Um elementary school at a Catholic school in Puyallup and then uh, in a high school at a public high school in Tacoma. Uh, and I would say that I struggled a lot in elementary school, um, had a lot of, um, uh, and I, my report cards 
you know, I usually did okay in terms of grades, but I had always really poor grades in conduct, which was a, a grade that, <laughs> that they gave us, you know? Uh, so I had really low grades in conduct. I was not, uh, you know, that not ever the teacher's pet or favorite, um, in, and was constantly in trouble. In fact, my parents were very worried about me coming out of elementary school. Uh, you know, I did well on standardized tests. Um, but, but I was just not, a, not a star student. Um, and until I got to high school and really in my, my high school, uh, I sort of found myself as a student and, and I really feel like I owe my, any academic success I had to my experience at Foss high school, uh, in the international baccalaureate program there. Was the conduct issue, was it more of like rebellion or was it questioning authority or what was the, what was the deal? I think it was all of the above. Um, yeah, definitely. And that's always been an issue for me. Uh, you know, I think how I ended up in academia, you know, not, not really liking having a boss. Um, and, um, and, 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 and also a little bit of restlessness, you know, which I think is, you know, a fairly common thing with, with young boys. (laughs) And, um, uh, just, I had a restless mind. I think that I was, I think looking back on it, I would say I was probably a little bit bored with material. Um, but in a, you know, in a the kind of traditional Catholic school classroom of 30 kids with, you know, the desks in a row, you, you know, you worked at the pace of your, of the class. And, um, and I think I didn't feel challenged, especially until, until I got into high school and then, you know, obviously beyond that. So you were a Rhodes Scholar and, mm-hmm. uh, Explain to those of us who, who haven't gone through that process. Every year, Oxford University selects uh, some students to come study in England. Um, it's an extremely difficult thing to, to get into, and it's such, such a feather in your cap, I think, academically. How, how did you end up getting chosen to be a Rhodes Scholar, and what was that experience like over there? Yeah, that was, you know, it, that, it, I when I was in college, um, had no idea what you know, I, I, you know, you kind of know what a, well, you vaguely know what a Rhodes Scholar is. You hear the term bandied around, but um, I had no idea how you apply for it or, or, or what it meant. I thought, the, you know, because when it was reported, I think my freshman year at Cornell, um, there was a story about someone being selected for a Rhodes Scholarship. And so I thought it was something that they just sort of tapped you like the, like the MacArthur or Genius Grant or something. <laughs> and I had a, a history professor who when I was a junior encouraged me to apply. And then it turns out there's just an application process for the Rhodes scholarship that they do it by country. Um, you know, so when the scholarship was created in the early 20th century, um, it, the, you know, scholarships were allocated by country according to Cecil Rhodes's will and the United States got the largest share, uh, but he was interested in educating people from the, you know, at that time, the English speaking world plus Germany, um, at Oxford as a way of sort of training the future leaders of the English speaking world. And, um, and so each country has a, a selection process and it's, you know, there's a secretary for the Rhodes scholarships from the United States. And then there's this committee structure under him or her. And, um, and that's done regionally. So I applied through Washington state, um, uh, when I, when I was a senior at Cornell, the, the selection process happens in the, in the fall, um, you submit the application in the early fall, and then and then um, 
their interviews usually shortly after Thanksgiving or at that time it was shortly after Thanksgiving. Now it's a little earlier. And then they announce them, you know, they, they award a certain number of scholars from each region. And so, so I'm yeah. guessing that it's sort of like a Harry Potter style dining hall and you're, you're having, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with people from every corner of the earth. What was that experience like? And, and what was the takeaway for you, Eduardo, in terms of who you became through that process? Yeah, I mean, Oxford, it definitely does look like, it scores high on the Hogwarts scale. Um, <laughs> although, you know, I I sort of, the, the colleges at, at Oxford vary quite dramatically in terms of how global they are. And, you know, I was admitted, so you get the scholarship from the, the Rhodes Scholars uh, Trust, you know, they, they award the scholarships, and then you have to apply to a college, and Oxford is 30-something colleges and it's described to me as what the United States would be like if the South had won the Civil War, um, in the sense that it's a highly federal hmm. university structure. It's very different from an American university. Each college has its own endowment um, and their own fees and their own resources for housing and dining, their own faculties. There's some shared faculty resources, but it's you know, your experience varies dramatically based on the college you attend. And, and I, you know, I so I got my scholarship in 94. It was just sort of early days of the internet. There was not a lot of information. You had a short period of time from when you were notified that you had the scholarship to when you um, had to make a decision of the college you were going to apply to. And I would say, you know, I chose a smaller, I went to Oriel College, which is one of the older colleges. It's small, beautiful college, not super global. It's very English. Um, and so my experience was like, I describe it as the, you know, to you think of the Harry Potter movies, in the early Harry Potter movies, everyone was white. And then after like the third movie, you start to get Indian and African and Asian uh, uh, Hogwarts students. And so Oriole College was like the early Harry Potter movies. And then I had, I had, um, you know, Rhodes Scholar classmates who were at larger colleges like New College or, or, or University College, which is Bill Clinton's college, you know, which were much more international. And, um, uh, so my experience, you know, I was the only, my first year at Oxford, I was the only Rhodes Scholar in my college, which, and you, you, it's exactly what you say, you eat and live in your college. And so it's a little bit, it was kind of isolating, um, and not at all what I expected. My, my wife at now, my wife at that time was my, my fiance was a stu master's student at London school of economics during my first year at Oxford. And I would go visit her. And that truly was you know, a really international global experience. And so I spent a lot of time uh, actually in London during that first year, kind of hanging out with her friends, because that was that was more of the experience that I expected when I when I went to Oxford. But, it, you know, Oxford is just an interesting place that um, where your experience varies quite dramatically based on the college you attend. Yeah. How did you get into law? Because you went on to publish scholarly articles. You've taught law all over the place in New York and Chicago and guest taught at uh, Yale and Harvard. You clerked for Justice uh, John Paul Stevens. How did you end up focusing on law? And I, I really want to know more about your clerking at the U.S. Supreme Court. It sounds like an amazing experience. Yeah, I, I knew I wanted to go to law school by about my end of my junior year in college. I, um, I, you know, I was a history major and my focus was on U.S. foreign policy and and Latin American history, and um, uh, I, I just told this story recently. I was at a a fest shift for one of my professors at Cornell, a really 
influential uh, diplomatic historian named Walter Lefebvre, who died just a couple of years ago. And, and you know, the impact, you know, in terms of my career, the, the impact of studying history really shifted me away from thinking I wanted to be a, a physician like my dad to, to wanting to be a lawyer, just because when you study American history, you, I think you quickly come to realize that we're a country of laws and, um, and the shape of our society is probably influenced more directly by the legal profession than any other, um, in, you know, in the country. And, and that's not true everywhere, but certainly true here. And, and so all the people I was reading about, you know, in my, in my history studies were lawyers. And I just thought, boy, if I want to have an impact on, um, on, on systems of justice and injustice in the United States, I need to study law. And, uh, so I went to Oxford and I did philosophy and theology at Oxford, but I, I knew I was heading to law school. I had already been admitted to law school and deferred during my scholarship. Um, so I came back after the two years at Oxford and, 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 you know, started law school at Yale. Um, and, uh, you know, I learned that while it's true that we're a nation of laws, the, the ability to change the law, it's really, you know, is, is really, um, I mean, the, that process of changing the law and changing structures of justice is incredibly complicated and, and difficult. And, um, but it, you know, it, it, but it's, I think it's still true that if, if you care about those issues, um, the legal profession is the natural place to, um, to focus your attention. And, uh, and I, I, but I went to law school, not ever intending to be a law professor. I intended to be a practicing lawyer and, and clerk, like, I clerked for one year at the Court of Appeals, uh, and the, uh, for Judge Guido Calabresi, and then and then a year at the Supreme Court for John Paul Stevens, and then you know started law practice at a, at a law firm in D.C. Uh, and 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 really kind of stumbled my way into law teaching a few years later. Tell me what it was like clerking for Justice Stevens. Um, I don't know what that exactly means, clerking, but. <clears throat> Yeah. Cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but it, he was known for defending civil rights and civil liberties and kind of known as a common sense uh, justice uh, on the high court. Um, what was that time like? And what, what do you think was the most profound thing that you learned from observing him and working with him? Well, Justice Stevens is an amazing human, an amazing lawyer and an amazing human. Um, uh, clerking, I, I also, you know, I got to law school not knowing what a clerkship was. In fact, when I, when I, you know, I don't really have lawyers in my, in my immediate family. And, um, but clerkships are, um, uh, they're very competitive jobs, you know, so, uh, they, each judge, this is true in the federal system. It's true in the state, it's different in the state courts, but in the federal courts, each judge, you know, depending on the level of court you're talking about, gets two or three or at the Supreme court four law clerks, it's a one year position. They tend to be young lawyers, pretty fresh out of law school who help them do legal research help them with drafting opinions and orders. Um, and, um, and so you have really have a bird's eye kind of inside view of the judicial system at a really young age at an early stage in your career. It's a, it's a great privilege and, um, an amazing education, kind of a continuation of law school in some ways. And I had the, you know, the great fortune to work for two brilliant judges Guido Calabresi, what clerked for in the court of appeals is a former Dean of Yale Law School and a, a really influential tort scholar, one of the fathers of law and economics. Um, and then uh, 
Then I clerked for John Paul Stevens, who, as you say, was, you know, very different because not an academic, um, uh, very common sense judge, uh, came out of law practice in Chicago um, and uh, uh, was a, a lower court judge before he became uh, Supreme Court justice and uh, just an incredibly humble, brilliant person. I think the smartest man I've ever met. He has like a uh, just a brilliant legal mind, um, a photographic memory. Um, the story I love to tell is sitting in chambers with him talking about cases. And, you know, he had been, I clerked for him in 2000. He'd been on the Supreme Court uh, at that point for um, 25 years and, you know, five years before that on the Court of Appeals. And he, he would remember cases he had worked on decades before, he would remember the the arguments, the 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 conference discussion among the justices, who voted which way and who changed their vote. And then, and then he would just go up to, we had a wall of all the, the books that had the, the opinions in them, you know, the, 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 the Supreme court reporter. Um, and he would, he could just, and there are hundreds of volumes and he would just go and pick the volume off the shelf that had the case he wanted to find and open it up. You know, um, he, that was just the man he was, but he, but it really known to be incredibly focused on fairness. Um, very interested in context and in the facts of cases. And really, I think of him as a judge in the common law mold, which to me is the best kind of judge. <laughs> he just, yeah. a judge who believes in, in narrow decisions and in incrementalism and in grounding his decisions in, in, in um, lived context. Yeah. It seems to me that the current Supreme Court has gotten a lot more political than some people are comfortable with. I'd love your opinion briefly on on what's going on currently today in terms of the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean I think the the Supreme Court has always been a political body. It's you know it's it's the it operates on its own cadence, right? But it it you know it's you, justices are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. So they're going to be influenced by mm-hmm. the politics of the time uh, that they're put on the court and the court shifts over time in response to longer trends of political um, change. And it's always re- deciding cases that are e- hard, contentious, that have been the source of disagreement in the lower courts. So there's there's a kind of unavoidably political dimension to the work of the Supreme Court. And yet justices can be more or less ideological in their approach to the, the act of judging. Um, Justice Stevens is on one end in, in really being grounded in the law as he understood it. You know, he had commitments clearly, um, uh, and those influenced his decision making at the margins, but really took seriously the, uh, you know, took seriously precedent, took seriously the coherence of the law across different areas, um, and took seriously his own limitations, you know, as a judge deciding a case at one point in time, and so avoided sweeping ideological decision making. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think when people say the courts become more political, I think what they mean really is it's become more ideological. Um, so that the behavior of judges becomes a little more predictable based on what we think their priors are. Hmm. Um, and, and, and it's certainly become more conservative. I mean, every year, uh, that justice Stevens was on the court, um, you know, whenever a justice, retired, they were replaced with one exception, uh, by a justice who was more conservative than they, than they were, you know, and the exception being probably, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, for Byron White. Hmm. Um, 
but even that, maybe there was there's some shift to the right on certain issues. So uh, the court as a whole really shifted over the course of his career. You know, he was appointed by Gerald Ford, and so that the, over the you know the the period of his career from Gerald Ford to uh, to Barack Obama when he when he retired, uh, the court you know shifted quite dramatically to the right. As I mentioned, you're the first non-Jesuit president of Seattle University in 133 years. I had the honor of knowing your predecessor, Father Steve Sundborg, through our membership in the Rotary Club of Seattle. I was so impressed always with his leadership and, and just him as a person. Um, I'd love to know why the university looked outside the Jesuit community for, for its new leader, because it was a big shift for Seattle U, and I'd love your perspective on that. You know, I think when Father Steve was hired, I... He said, I'll be the last Jesuit president of Seattle University. And I think, um, you know, the reason for saying that at the time was that he could see that there were fewer and fewer Jesuits and fewer and fewer Jesuits who were really focused on higher education. Um, so the numbers of Jesuits overall is shrinking, uh, as with other Catholic priests. Um, and um, and then the the focus of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, over time has shifted. So in the you know, earlier in the 20th century, there was a really strong focus on higher education and secondary education. And then um, in the 60s, really right after uh, the Second Vatican Council, the, the, the society shifted its focus towards uh, more direct work with poor and, and people on the margins. And, and that attracted people to the Society of Jesus who were less interested in higher education and higher education administration. And so it's a combination of fewer Jesuits and fewer Jesuits who are really interested in university leadership. But we have this beautiful and rich um, uh, community of Jesuit universities, 27 Jesuit colleges and universities around the United States. Um, and and so there's there's been a very deliberate process of transitioning those universities to, to lay leadership. I would say 10 years ago, out of those 27, it might have been that three or four of them had a lay president. I think one of the first was Georgetown uh, under Jack DeJoya. And now, I believe of the 27, there are four Jesuits who are presidents. So it's it's completely reversed. Um, and uh, I'm sort of in the middle of that. I, I came in kind of in the middle of that transition. But every president who's been hired with, uh, during my time, my three years now at Seattle U, every president of another Jesuit university has been a lay person and many of them replacing Jesuits who are retiring. So Father Steve had, he, he was president for 24 years at Seattle University, kind of preparing the university for a transition to non-Jesuit leadership. And, and so the university had a lot of time to kind of come to terms with that and, and get ready for that. Yeah. I'm just amazed at when you look at the foundation that was laid by the Jesuits over the years, these universities are some of the top schools in the world. And, and that foundation, that DNA that still runs through schools like Seattle U is just so profound. And uh, the dedication to, to knowledge and the truth. I heard you talk in an interview. It might have been uh, something that the university put out. But I heard you talk about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I'd love your definition of that because I think I think it's common in our society today to think if you just load enough stuff in your head, you're going to be a success and you're going to make a lot of money and life is going to be great. But I take it that that you see the distinction and 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 I'd love to to have you talk about that. Well, I think you know we're we're all on a journey trying to trying to 
obtain more wisdom. Um, and, and I think we never, we never quite finished that, that journey, but, but, you know, I would distinguish between, uh, knowing, um, facts or acquiring technical expertise, which is important for sure. Um, and then, uh, you know, a deeper wisdom that brings facts and expertise into conversation with, with your values, with your commitments, with more transcendent questions of meaning. And I, I think Jesuit education has always very self-consciously aspired to, to aim for that, that, that engagement, um, with those deeper questions, what, what, uh, one of the leaders of the society of Jesus called the big questions, you know, the, the, what gives meaning to life and, um, and, and how we should spend our limited time. And, and so that's something that's kind of woven into the fabric of, of, of Jesuit higher education through a number of different, um, mechanisms. I mean, the most important one probably being for Jesuit universities, a really rich core curriculum that requires students, no matter what field they're studying, to engage with philosophy and theology, not, not Catholic theology narrowly, right? But to, you know, all of our students have to take um, at least one theology course. It could be world religions. It could be, you know, um, uh, some, something on, you know, um, Eastern spirituality or, or it could be Catholic theology, but, but one theology course and two philosophy courses to graduate. And that's true for our engineers and our business students and, and um, you know, and our philosophy majors. <laughs> Yeah. So getting that really well-rounded education. You spent a number of years as dean of the Cornell School of Law in New York. I'd love to talk about some of the lessons in leadership that you learned over the years. And who were some of the key people in your life that, that you learned these leadership lessons from? Well, I always start with my two judges, you know, because um, uh, they're, they're leaders, right, in, in chambers. Um, and, uh, you know, from Justice Stevens, just you know, his tremendous kindness and humility were always, have always been models for me of, of, of leadership. And, um, and I've tried to, I, I fall short of his example every day, <laughs> but, but I, but I always kind of think of him as, you know, as, as uh, the model, um, boss. Um, and, uh, and so that's one, one, one person who had a deep influence on my leadership side, but the other because he was the dean of a law school was, was Judge Calabresi, um, who insists on being called Guido. And, um, <laughs> you know, awesome. he was that he was the dean of, of Yale Law School for about eight years, uh, in the, I think it was in the late eighties into the early nineties. And so when I was applying to be a law dean at Cornell, I, I reached out to him and had conversations with him about, you know, what is a dean? Like what, in his view, he was very successful, really kind of transitioned to Yale from being, um, you know, everyone thought of as a sort of, uh, afterthought after Harvard to being seen as the top law school in the country. And that really happened under his watch. And, um, he had this metaphor that he used for leadership and especially academic leadership, which I, I continue to come back to, um, of the, the Dean as a Butler. And it's a kind of evocative image and it's, and it, he he was very clear that it's not like a form of false modesty that calling calling you know the butler is an important person in a household, but the butler is a, is in service of the household and 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 so his model was a kind of gentle model of leadership as service, 
um, but you know, but but assertive, but gentle, you know, and kind of guiding, and and certainly opinionated, but but never forgetting that the main work of the university is is the work in the classroom and the the work with the students and the work of administration is is to facilitate that to remove obstacles to guide it for sure and to be looking ahead so that people who are engaged in the in the day-to-day work of of teaching and and guiding students um, can focus on that and so that's always been kind of my my touchstone uh, yeah. as a dean and 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 as a president as well when you took the job at Seattle U you proceeded to load your dog into your plane <laughs> and flew all the way out here. I'd love to know when did flying become your passion and what is it about flying that intrigues you? Well, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I mean like four year, four or five years old, um, when my dad was doing his residency at the university of Washington, we lived in Seattle at that time. And my, my mom took me to the science center and, um, they have this mercury space capsule, uh, model there that you can sit in and flip the switches. I think it's still there. And I just became fascinated by, uh, by space travel and aviation. And, um, and so, you know, when I was younger, my, my, my dream was to be an astronaut. And, and actually when I was in high school, I, I applied to the Air Force Academy and I had a nomination from uh, Senator Brock Adams and, uh, you know, but my parents were kind of peace activists and I, you know, I, it, it just sort of didn't feel right for me to, to, to join the air force. And, um, and I ended up going to, to Cornell in part because Carl Sagan was there and I wanted to study with Carl Sagan. And, uh, but I, when I decided not to pursue a, a career in, in flight, I promised myself I would get my pilot's license at some point. And, and it took me, you know, uh, almost 30 years to, to do that. I had to finish school and um, finish my clerkships. And I got my clerkship bonus when I joined the law firm and I took some of that money and um, got flying lessons. So I, I, I studied to become a pilot in fall of 2001, got interrupted briefly by 9-11. Um, and, um, but I've been flying ever since and uh, was fortunate enough when, when I was at Cornell to, partner up with a couple of guys to, to buy a small, you know, four seat airplane. And then when, when I moved out to Seattle, I bought their shares out and <laughs> took me a while to get out to Seattle, but you know, you, you know, we had to stop several times, but the dog and I made it out, it took a couple of days to get out here and it was, it was a good venture. It seems like an intellectual, uh, you know, thing to do as well as just kind of a fun, fun thing to be soaring through the skies as well. Right. It, it's sort of, you know, it's, when I tell people I'm a pilot, they, they, some, you know, people read, some people read that as being kind of thrill seeking, but to me, it's like the opposite. It's it, I find it very meditative and, and I'm, I'm, I have a hard time quieting my mind when I'm really kind of stressed out about something. If I go flying, I have to focus on the flying and it, it's like forced meditation. Um, because it's really an, a pretty engaging activity. Uh, you, you know, you're, it's intellectual and a little bit, um, muscle memory and, um, but it, it does require your complete attention. And <laughs> it's kind of like yoga, I, you know, if you, it is if a little you, like, it's like, stop a, thinking about it. You'll just fall out of pose. And <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. it's, it's like a, it's like a machine assisted yoga. 
Um, um, I'd love to ask about politics in in uh, higher education. I've had a number of close friends who've been professors over the years, and I, I just sort of observed them trying to navigate the political landscape. Uh, how did you find uh, politics when you rose through the ranks of leadership in universities? And and what's your best advice for someone who wants to to go up the go up the food chain in in higher ed? What's the best way to do that? University politics, I you know, so one I, I kind of resist the idea of up the food chain because I, I think of really um I, I think of the the faculty are kind of at the top of the food chain. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I that I, I loved being a professor and I told you, you know, I I had issues with authority and didn't like having a boss, and and that was one of the things that drew me into academia because uh, when you have uh when you're a tenured professor, you know, you're your own boss, you set your own Deadlines. I mean, there are some things you have to do. You have to do your teaching and your grading. And and certainly, you know, there's some deadlines around those things. But but every day you kind of decide, apart from the time you're in the classroom, how you're going to spend that day, what you're going to read, what you're going to write. And um, that that's very that's a very liberating lifestyle. One of my one of my colleagues, I think, very accurately called it the loophole in life. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you didn't grow up with a trust fund, <laughs> the ability to be a a faculty member, you know, is just um, remarkably uh, liberating, and I enjoyed every day of it. Um, but uh, you know, administration—I think what one of the, you know, the frustrations of being a faculty member is is kind of the university, how the universities run, and whether it's being run well or poorly. And and I, you know, I felt like I had something to offer in administration, and certainly the lawyer part of my brain like just had kind of practical problem solving uh, joys that that weren't being exercised as a faculty member every day. And so I, yeah, I jumped at the opportunity to become an administrator and I've enjoyed that a lot. I really, I think it's kind of the perfect job for me and the perfect balance of being in the, in the university and then being able to enjoy the, the life of the university, but also, you know, kind of exercising the lawyer part of my brain The uh, you know, not every day is, fun and it can be the, the politics of the university can be frustrating in part because the decision-making structures are really um, decentralized and kind of challenging to navigate. But, um, but that's kind of what makes them special communities. And hmm. uh, you know, in terms of advice for someone who is interested in university administration, I think um, the, the biggest challenge is getting the opportunity um, as a faculty member, and not everyone has to come through the faculty, but certainly at the higher levels of university administration, you tend to find people coming. I would say that's the, the dominant pathway is through the faculty. Um, uh, for me, the challenge as a faculty member was getting the opportunity to lead things. And, and you have to, you're sort of dependent on the existing leadership to, to gain those opportunities. And I always encourage people to raise their hands, you know, like if, if you're interested in a career in administration to make sure to let, um, let the university leadership know that you have that interest because I'm always on the lookout for um, faculty who want that experience and who have that talent. Be, uh, those are very, you know, it's, it's most people aren't drawn into a career in academia because they want to do administration. Usually administration is almost like a bad word um, <laughs> at, at, among faculty. And so um, I'm always happy to learn that someone wants that experience and I'm on the lookout for opportunities to give, give them that because when you then start applying for jobs, and especially as you kind of move up, um, 
in terms of the administrative hierarchy, um, the the number one obstacle to uh, success is the lack of experience. People are always looking for you to have the exact experience that they're trying to hire you for, and that obviously is kind of a an ox, you know a little bit of a contradiction. Um, but as a faculty member, I was looking for opportunities to lead whatever you know the faculty workshop series or or a self study you know, something that would get me out there organizing things and, and showing that I could do that kind of work. Um, and then as a dean, looking for opportunities to engage at the university level and lead at the university level so that when I applied to be a president, I had things I could talk about, experiences beyond the life of the law school. And so it was a matter of, you know, just not being bashful about that desire to gain those experiences. And, and then the, you know, the piece of advice that the provost who hired me um, gave, which I thought was really important, uh, hired me as a dean, okay, was at every level of the university, you're going to be most successful if you think one level up. So when you're a faculty member in a department or the leader of a department, thinking about the college as a whole and the and not just what's in the interest of your discipline or your department, but thinking about what's important to the college. And then when you're in college leadership, thinking beyond just the narrow interests of your college and thinking about how you can be useful and helpful to the university as a whole. And so always kind of thinking one level above. And that even applies to the, my current role as a president, right? I mean, to me, then what's the level above? Well, it's the role of the university in the broader community, right? In, in, in this region and in the, in, the, in, in the city of Seattle and in the state of Washington um, as, a, as a colleague to, to all the businesses in Seattle and to the, the people of Seattle um, and to the other universities in the region as well. I know we have just a few minutes left, so I want to honor our time together. You mentioned community. It's it's really clear that you're not just committed to leadership at Seattle University. I've seen you in leadership roles in a number of civic groups, um, and that doesn't seem to be a strategy on your part. It really seems to be just who you are. Um, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean it's it's a great privilege, right? And I um, I think it's it's important for the university that I be out in those roles. And it's just very satisfying for me to have the opportunity to um, engage, you know, with people like you at, at CDRT or, or, um, or to serve on the boards that I'm on or to work with our community partners. Um, it, it, it's why I do this work. And, um, uh, and just one of the, one of the really rewarding parts about being a, a university leader, I, you know, just to give one example, I'm on the board of Fred Hutch and, and um, uh, I mean, such an amazing institution and I, I have no illusions, right, that I'm only on the board of Fred Hutch because I'm the president of Seattle University. And, and, and yet my mom is a, a cancer survivor and my wife is a cancer survivor. And yeah, actually both of them at various times have been patients at what was Seattle Cancer Care Alliance and now part of Fred Hutch. And, and so it's a way for me to kind of pay that, pay that back, pay that forward by helping that institution, you know, just continue to thrive in, in, in its leadership role here in, in Seattle and in the country. So you've been at the helm for a little bit. I'd love to ask you as we wrap things up, Eduardo, what do you know about Seattle University that maybe somebody on the outside doesn't know? What, what's the university's secret sauce or, or what you're most proud of? I mean, what I'm most proud of is just what a, what a rich and um, passionate, academic community this is, um, you know, people who are really dedicated to the mission of Jesuit higher education, um, you know, 
and that includes our, our students who, who come here to, to have that experience, the faculty, the staff. When I, we just did a, a workforce survey last spring. And when you look at the results of that survey, um, you know, you see how, how motivated people are by, by the Jesuit mission of Seattle University and its commitment to, to service, to education of the whole person, to academic excellence. I think that what might be surprising to people, when I engage with people outside of Seattle University, you know, I think that they are not aware of um, the breadth of offerings that we have, the importance of this university to this region and how unique it is within the higher education ecosystem um, in the state. You know, we are the, we're the, the largest private comprehensive university in, in, in this region, really the only private comprehensive university in this region. And, you know, I'm not sure that we have the kind of mind share in Seattle that, 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 that merits. And so that's part of our challenge and effort is to get the word out. So many people in Seattle, I think we forget how many people in Seattle are not from Seattle. Hmm. Um, I think it's about half the city, you know, are people who have moved here as adults and, um, and they don't necessarily know Seattle university. And so we, we are constantly having to, I think, think about new ways to introduce ourselves to what is a really fast growing city and a city full of, of people from all over the world and all over the country and, and um, either educating them about or teach, you know, kind of introducing them to this phenomenal institution, really important part of the Seattle community is, is, is something that um, is kind of a daily challenge for me. Well, we have to uh, wrap things up. And I just want to say, Eduardo, as I've gotten to know you over the past few years, I've just been really impressed by your your humility and your intellect and that combination of the two that is just so, um, it's amazing to watch. And I, and, I, and I can see why they chose you to to lead that, that amazing university. So um, keep up the great work. And it's been really nice spending some time with you. Thanks. No, thanks for inviting me. I, I really enjoyed it. And um Look forward to seeing you on one of our Monday lunches down at uh, the WAC. See you soon. I'm Mark Wright. Thanks for listening to Beats Working, part of the Work P2P family. New episodes drop every Monday. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to show producer and web editor Tamar Medford. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from our Contributors Corner and Sidekick Sessions. Join us next week for another episode of Beats Working, where we are winning the game of work.